Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Yevamot, daf Samach Dalid, page 64. So we have here, a, on we open, or almost open with the Mishnah, and then this daf is replete with a lot of agarata that crops up in learning of Kumash, in learning of Rashi. So if you've had the chance or you will have the chance to read through the daf in its entirety, some of these points will be familiar to you. Um, they are interpretive, I would say, right? Meaning not everything that Chazal interpret is necessarily meant to be taken literally. And I just want to, um, you know, express that note of caution. Uh, some of it is a matter of literally of an explanation. I'll give you perhaps, uh, you know, one of the most famous examples is the the fact of Sarah and Avraham who were married for 10 years, and then Avram takes Hagar to be a wife, right? Or Sarah encourages him to do so. And the commentary says, well, because after 10 years of no children, a man needs to divorce his wife. So instead of divorcing her, really, what happens is, in this case, he takes a second wife. And so this, as a as a principle, let's say, appears on this staff, um, the Avram and Sarah story. And I know you're, Dan, you're going to talk a little bit more about the, the biblical side of things as it is on this stuff. I want to read here the Mishnah, which the Mishnah here is the halachic side that feeds that Rashi, that interpretation of the Avram and Sarah story. So if a man marries a woman and, she, and they stay together for 10 years and she does not give birth, he's no longer able to like to ignore i guess is the best way to explain it although the word is literally to cancel to ignore the mitzvah puravu right this he is not fulfilling his obligation to be fruitful and multiply because they as a couple have not had children so the question then is you know what does he do about that so either he they could get divorced right or he can maybe take a second wife as in the avram and sarah story gersha but if he divorces her, she's allowed to marry somebody else, right? Meaning the Gemara, or in this case, the Mishnah, recognizes that the combination of the two people might be might have been the issue, as opposed to saying she, this woman, is inherently barren because she um, because she did not bear children to this man. Maybe it was the man's the man who was sterile, right? Uh, and then she can stay married to the second man for a full 10 years. And only then would there be any concern that she's truly considered barren. And they count the 10 years from the time of miscarriage. Meaning the concern here is not, I mean, I guess eventually the concern becomes carrying to term. But initially, the question is, can she conceive? And if she, because remember, we were talking about Ilonit. We were talking about somebody who, where the presumption is that she's she doesn't have semen group, she doesn't have any signs of physical maturity, and the the concern is that she would be barren. So this doesn't mention an Ilonit. This Mishnah is talking about a woman who's not an Ilonit, and yet, you know, she does not conceive, she does not bear. And then again, the question is, how do you count those ten years? You count the years from the time of the miscarriage, from a miscarriage, as opposed to saying from the time of, let's say, from the day of the wedding. You know, the Gemara, the Mishnah here, again, I keep calling it the Gemara, the Mishnah here recognizes that there's a whole slew of factors that could be in play to, to make this couple technically childless, right? 
And it's not necessarily because of her, but at the end of the day, the mission's concern is that this man has a mitzvah to fulfill, which is not, I'm not going to say it's equitable, but that is the concern here as expressed in the Mishnah. Uh, then it says, you know, at that point he should, you know, find another woman with whom to have children. Now, I want to make a point here also, which is that as we go into the Gemara, the Gemara has a lot, a lot of cases where something goes wrong in the first case and something goes wrong in the second case. And, you know, traditionally I would say that we would say we would only establish something as fact. Halacha establishes something as fact only on the basis of chazaka. Chazaka meaning something happens three times. And yet in these cases, the obligation does not ever seem to get to be to three cases. I'm jumping ahead. You're going to talk about the part in the middle, but I just want to make the point in conjunction with the Mishnah here. So for example, one of the cases in the, on the Dapim of the Gemara, I think it's actually Amun Bet, is about, it's a terrible, terrible story of a woman who has a child, a couple who has a child, they give the baby a brit milah, and the, from the circumcision, the child dies. And this, do not say, oh, try again to establish it as fact, right? They say, no, this woman should not give a third child a brit milah, because this child, because this woman's children, seem to have a thing where they will, you know, Rahman al-Nabakh die from having the circumcision. So they don't say she shouldn't have a baby. They don't say um they right and they don't say you have to wait to say three children to make sure that it's fact. They say we ha- now have a concern that this would happen, so we're going to protect the child and and this happens in several of the other cases also. We don't establish, we don't wait for the fact of Khazaka to protect the concerns here of, you know, make sure that you don't give a third boy baby a brit milah because the first two under the same circumstances died. Now, that could have been from all kinds of scientific rationale why why a baby might, God forbid, die from, you know, hemophilia, something, infection, who knows, right? But but they don't, they don't pussyfoot around it here, right? Like they say, don't give that next baby, boy baby, a brit milah. So I think it's really an interesting, an interesting divide. On the one hand, we want to make sure that everything is happening exactly in accord with the mitzvot to make sure that they're happening as, you know, to the fulfillment of mitzvot is happening to the extent possible. And also, you know, in case you weren't sure, we're still having a, a, an overall concern of protection of life. So from a medical point of view, everybody cites this Gemara because uh, you know, it's an example or it's supposedly a description of hemophilia A, right? That you have an X-linked, meaning it's through the mother, uh, some type of bleeding disorder that would cause, unfortunately, these babies not to be able to survive a circumcision. Um, I can tell you in my own practice, this has actually come up a couple of times that I can think of where we knew there was a risk for bleeding. It didn't actually have to be hemophilia. It could have even been a different clotting disorder, and it becomes an issue of how do you safely do a bris, do you do a bris, things like that. So, but just, you know, just to point out, this is one of these gemars that's often cited by doctors as a very interesting medical uh, passage. Um, And it's interesting to see their description of it, because obviously they had no understanding of the concept of genes. They were able to recognize pattern uh, that somehow this was uh, related to the mother, but I also just want to point out that it wouldn't be every son who would necessarily have it. You had a 50% chance. Go Google it. You can figure it out. It's, you know, sort of basic genetics. 
Um, but, uh, you know, interesting to see their discussion and then sort of, did you need two babies or three babies and how exactly did that get established? Yeah. I, you know, I, I clearly there's a medical rationale here. I just find it interesting that with whatever information they had, right, they were still able to be, to take the precaution. Nowadays, I imagine you could test and decide and determine I don't know. You tell us, you know, could is there a way to make sure that the baby could still have a brit milah with, I don't know what, medicine, well, right. medical pill, medicine staff on standby? There's medicine that you can give now. So, but very complicated how you do it or if you do it safely. But yes, hemophiliacs basically have a clotting factor, a medicine that they carry with them in case, God forbid, they do get injured in a way. And so it's on hand to how you're basically giving them a medicine that helps them clot. So that, that's that's exactly how that works today. Um, but whether you voluntarily do bursmila, I'll, I'll leave that up to your local rabbi <laughs> to decide. <laughs> it's a complicated discussion. In fact, the Gemara Nivamos is later going to describe a priest, a Kohen, who did not have a circumcision because of this. So this was actually, um, it was actually, uh, it was actually practice. Um, I'm going to go on to, uh, uh, I think it's on, it's, it's on Daf Ayan, I believe it's, uh, that's where I think it is. Daf Ayan Amad Um, so just, we'll, we'll keep that in mind for when we get to it. Um, I want to talk about two interesting things here. One, which is also medical, but I'm going to talk about that second, because we tend to go in the order of the Daf. Um, and the other is what I think is one of the most problematic or puzzling, let's say, theological statements that the Gemara makes. It's, it's very famous actually, but here it's one of those things I think we've all heard, but now you actually see it in sort of the black and white in the print. Um, so the Gemara is having a discussion about was Rivka or was Yitzchak, which one was actually sterile? And again, I just want to note it's interesting uh, for as misogynistic we have found some of these passages that the Gemara is very open that you can have male infertility or female infertility. There's no such thing as like completely blaming the woman here, which I'm not sure I, I would like to guess probably was not, uh, might have been radical in its time, but I, I, I can't prove that. That's just my gut. Um, and so they're having a discussion about the actual Pasuk that describes how Yitzhak and Rivka prayed uh, to have children, right? And it says, Vayater Yitzhak lahashem ishto, right? Which essentially says that uh, Yitzhak prayed to Hashem opposite his wife. And the discussion is, is that because she was the one who was barren? And so then it basically comes to the conclusion, no, both of them had infertility issues, right? So then why does it say, and Hashem, you know, that he he was davened by Yitzchak, right? It should have said they both davened to Hashem. That's what the Pasuk should have said. And so then the Gemara goes on to say, right? Because there's a difference between the uh, prayer of a righteous person who's a son of a righteous person uh, versus the prayer of a righteous person, the son of a bad person, which would be Rivka, right? Because Lavan was not good. And then it goes on to sort of make a general discussion about this issue of infertility. I'm a Rabbi Yitzchak. Rabbi Yitzchak says, Why was it that our forefathers were infertile? Because Hashem craves the prayers, right? Wants or desires the prayers of the righteous. And then it goes on to say, right? 
um, back here. Why are the what? Why are the prayers of righteous compared to a pitchfork? Ma eter zem hapach just as a pitchfork turns over the grain and tosses it from one place to another, so to the prayers of the righteous, turn over the attributes of Hashem, from the attribute of anger to the attribute of mercy. And notice also that the word that they use here, a tear of pitchfork, is the same root of the word of prayer that's used specifically in the Pasuk of Yitzchak and Rivka. So I think that's connected also. Um, you know, theologically, I think this is a troublesome passage for two reasons. One, the idea that some people's tefillots are worth more than others, right? Sadiq ben Sadiq is better than Sadiq ben Rasha. I maybe could make an argument that Sadiq ben Rasha is, be- is better. Um, and I think this is a great passage. Uh, I actually recently had a discussion with a friend. I'm going to actually show him this Gemara uh, about... Um, you know, the concept of meritocracy, does that exist? And I said, no, I actually think we're really obsessed with yichas. So this is a great passage that shows that, right? Um, <laughs> you could say Tzadik ben Rasha is actually, you know, uh, that's a meritocracy. Like, look, this person became a Tzadik. Um, but I think the other piece is, is that this concept that sort of like God made them suffer, made them experience infertility, which obviously had to be painful because you reach out in prayer because God wanted to hear their prayers. Um, I, we've all heard that. I think it's one of those things you pick up if you went to day school, like in your education. It's not nice to read. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, I, I, look, I don't know that it's making a general thing about people in general. I think it is saying something specific about the avot. It's not saying that people in general are made to suffer because God wants their prayers. And so I guess I'll comfort myself by saying, when I've been through hard things, it's not because I'm ecstatic and God wants to hear me die. <laughs> but um, I, I don't know. It's bothersome to think about that, that they went through that experience. And also it, it, it's the concept of like that God is mitzvah. I mean, it's really talking about God in a very anthropomorphic way, that God has a need or God has a desire uh, is, is also interesting to me. Um. And don't worry, uh, so, commentators try to figure this out. I, I, I'm not asking, I'm not the first person to ask this question. No, right. That's true. I was going to say, you know, I, I'm also familiar with this. And again, I think it comes up in Rashi, maybe a little Ramban, you know, on the Parshiot in the discussion of Rifkin Yitzchak, you know, whatever. Um, I, I think the notion that God needs the Tfilot isn't the part that bothers me. The anthropomorphic side of it isn't what bothers me. What bothers me, I think, and I think maybe everybody, is the idea that God would bring suffering in order to engineer the tefillot of the tzaddikim, right? Meaning, the the like, what we're not going to pray if things are good, and part of that is that yeah, it's true. Human nature is to pray less when things are good. That we don't necessarily turn as much as we turn to God in Thanksgiving. People turn to God even more, I think, in in troublesome times, right? But to say that the troublesome times are there, like we talked about this the other day, right? We know the reason why. Here we know the reason why is to bring about the tefillot of the tzaddikim. I think that's difficult because, again, I'm always going to find it difficult when we, in our you know puny human understandings of, of how God runs the world, will say, well, this is exactly why and how God runs the world. But I think that there's some effort in that 
right? How can it be that tzaddikim will suffer? It must be that there's it's to to strengthen the relationship between God and the tzaddikim. I, I meaning, I think that part of it is that answer of why would they ever have to have gone through this? And instead of throwing up their hands and saying, "We don't know how God runs the world. It's God's incomprehensible to man." Chazal say, we we find this painful, but we have an explanation. The explanation is to to strengthen the bonds between the tzaddikim and God, because the tzaddikim turned to God. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I hear that. I think that might be more what it's answering. Instead of saying this is a good thing, it's more an observation to be like, we have to explain why they suffered at all. And so this is our explanation for it. I just want to wrap up the episode with one quick thing. Uh, on Yevamo Samafet, there was a dis- it was hinted at, but here there's a much more of discussion about it. That you know um, uh, that uh, Rav Huna gave very very lengthy uh, you know essentially it sounds and it caused some of his students to become infertile. Um, and here there's a much lengthier discussion about it. I'm not going to read it inside. Um, uh, well, you know, I'll just read this piece. You know that Amar Rav Acha Bar Yaakov, Shitim Savi Havina. There were there were Rav describes that there were sixty scholars Vikulu Ikur of Miprike to Rav Huna Lebarmana, and all of us became sterile because of Rav Huna's lectures, except for me. Um, and there's even a discussion about a treatment that there was. Uh, that Rav Acha Bar Yaakov, you know, it's actually the passage before I'm reading this out of order here, that they suspended it from a cedar column and some kind of discharge came out of it. And that seems to be that that sort of like uh, fixed his infertility. Um, so this is also an interesting medical one, right? It's, it seems the implication seems to be in the way the Mepharchim explained it, that it was sort of like they held it in and didn't go to the bathroom and must have gotten um, some type of urinary tract infection or something like that. Um, I would encourage you, there's a great article on Talmudology, which is Jeremy Brown, Dr. Jeremy Brown's blog, uh, where he talks about a lot of this science and Talmud uh, items, you know, where he talks a little bit about the connection between uh, urinary tract infection and male infertility, but also just an interesting discussion here, you know, that sort of, it's interesting, they don't sort of like blame Rav Huna or why did nobody ever tell Rav Huna like make your lectures actually shorter. It's more just to like, yeah, there's a bunch of people who became infertile because of Rav Huna. Um, but it, again, another interesting sort of medical description that we see appear in the DAF today. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff and its complications. Uh, thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Music.